The policeman isn't there to create disorder. The policeman is there to preserve disorder. Gentlemen, get the thing straight once and for all. We clear the streets along this route, deploy our men, and create an impassable barrier. A gauntlet, if you will. He won't have a chance. I challenge you to a duel. Well, tell you the truth, this guy's starting to get on my nerves. <laughs> you want to crown him? They crown him. But they are who we thought they were. And we let them on the It's hot. It's hot out there. Let's, we all walk out there. Very, very, very hot. Open fire! Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of The Gauntlet. I'm Ryan Saunders. I'm one of the hosts of this show, and with me today, as always, are... Eric Marsh. And... Andrew Stasulis. This show is a double feature podcast where one of us has to come up with a theme, and then the other two have to program a double feature in reaction to that theme. And... What ends up happening most of the time, right? Like we have, we either honor the theme, sometimes we buck up against it. And then every now and then, (laughs) someone picks a movie that then causes, at least for me, to completely reinterpret the theme and what it means and how it works. And that's certainly what we have this week. Um, It was was my turn to, to pick the topic, and it was mainly in reaction to watching some classic Hollywood films that covered a great deal of time. I specifically watched Heaven Can Wait, the Ernst Lubitsch film, which covers, I mean, at least five decades in a man's life. We see him as a kid, and then it's mainly an actor for the one guy for the rest of it. I'm blanking on his name, but he puts on old man makeup. It's, it's, it's nice. And it's, it's something you see a lot, a life story in a Hollywood film. And so that was kind of my open-ended, like, give me a life story. What does that look like? I didn't use that word specifically, I should say. I said, like, give me a whole life, uh, which I think is actually kind of key to what ended up happening here. And, um, you know, one film I think kind of got what I was initially thinking about, you know, covering multiple decades. But then the other film... Which I, I I loved both of these films and and the the other one I mean just I'm kind of like talking around it. Andy, you picked a really interesting film that like caused me to reinterpret like what the theme even meant, and I'm excited to like investigate that. I knew it. I knew that was going to happen. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I told Marsh, I'm like, look, I'm sorry, I'm picking this movie, and I know it's not exactly what. Yeah, the, no, it sounds. Mean- well, <laughs> I don't want to make this a whole thing either, but you, you did just say that there are a lot of films like this, and I. Have got to disagree with you. We, we actually both kind of there, struggle. I mean, we can talk. Oh, <laughs> sure. We, I mean, yeah. in the way that you put it, we both were suddenly being like, actually, there are. No, it's, I mean, that was the thing. I knew it'd be kind of impossible to search for. Like, I didn't envy your position, which is why I wanted it to kind of feel like you could just do whatever you want. But in my head, I'm like, I don't know what, like Forrest Gump counts, right? Something yeah, like that. that. That's you know? one. Name another. Yeah, sure. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So don't no, say I'm, Citizen Kane. I had two like, people tell me Sherman and Eric Freeman told me Bicentennial Man. All right, that's how that's how few movies people could think of when they think of a whole life. Everyone I talked to said Forrest Gump. So yeah. you okay, know. okay. No, listen, I'm fully conceded. I I picked the topic because I I also couldn't come up with very many and wanted to see what else there was. Um, and, it, and you also wanted to make it a little extra hard too when you were like, and preferably no real people and that's like those are the only movies well, I know, that do well, that but that's like, again i feel like a biopic is its own topic right so anyways anyways i'm more than i'm perfectly i'm peachy keen with what we got uh we we 
have lives. We we have whole yes. lives in, in, yes. in more ways than one. And uh, yeah, w- walk me through these lives, boys. Uh, Andy, kick us off. You have the earlier of the two films. Um, get, let me tell me about this one. <laughs> I, it's already a fever dream. I mean, for we're me. already kind of getting into it here. Yeah. Sure. So yeah, I mean, again, just uh, um, I. Uh, I had looked around a little bit and, and it was a sort of difficult thing to kind of search for. Like, um, you know, some weeks we have things that are very easy when you're just sort of like, huh, let me just see a big list of movies like this. You know, it's like movies set in the desert, right? It's very easy to find suddenly 200 titles to, to sort of sort through, but even trying to figure out how to cage this in a search bar was difficult. I was typing like, you know, movie about an entire life, you know, and like (laughs) just the most random shit was coming up, most of which didn't meet the topic. Then I was even trying to be very like specific and say something like, you know, movie about a boy turning into a man and like weird shit came there. Uh, So, so I was just like, I was kind of struggling. And obviously then when I was like actually finding things more often than not, it would be like, here's a movie about fucking, you know, uh, Taft from boy to, to, to president or whatever, you know, it was like biopics. Right. Yeah. And, yeah. and I, you know, I just was like, ah, and, and a movie kept popping into my head when I kept thinking about like, what's a movie where somebody kind of like experiences like an entire life, you know, or that we as an audience, like get to kind of experience an entire life from like childhood to adulthood and sort of deals with that transition. And Honestly, the movie that I ultimately picked just kept kind of like poking me on the shoulder and being like, I'm here. Like, what's wrong with me? You know? Sure. And I, I, I sort of like, well, you're a little weird though, you know? And, yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's, uh, it's a little different, but, but yeah, I love you. And, and I do love it. Uh, this is one of my favorite movies. When I saw it for the first time, it just immediately was like, oh my God, this, this is everything, you know? And we've had a few movies like that, even this, this doing this podcast where we've suddenly had that kind of like epiphany watching a film and just been like, yeah, 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 this is my shit. This is everything. You know, no, or the vain glory of command. People have heard us talk about that a lot. How we all say, <laughs> yeah. oh my God, yeah, this is in now my top 10 all time. Well, this film is in my top 10. I adore this film uh, for a plethora of, of reasons. Um, it's a movie that I have to both of you probably at previous points doing the podcast been like, I wonder if this will work. I've been trying so hard to work this one in. So it's loose connection to the topic as you originally sort of phrased it was, was it, that was finally it. That was all I needed to just say, you know what? Like, let's, let's fucking do it. You guys both hadn't seen it. And I wanted you both to see it so desperately. I want everyone to see this movie. I think there's just so many just kind of like eye-popping moments and and this will really tickle your brain. Um, the film is The Hourglass Sanatorium from 1973, directed by Polish filmmaker Wojciech Haas. This is probably one of the hardest movies to summarize plot-wise, so I'm, I'm, I'm not really going to attempt very much detail in this. Suffice to say, um, 
This movie concerns a man, a man by the name of Joseph, who is traveling to a sanatorium where his father has been sort of convalescing or dying, you know, basically an old folks home, a hospital where he's sort of been been placed in his old age to, to die. And we learn that he has died. And this is sort of the reason that Joseph is heading to the sanatorium. He's been told that his father has finally passed away. But when he gets to this decaying, decrepit, rotting, sprawling, massive sanatorium, the doctor, uh, (laughs) if you can call him a doctor, quickly explains to Joseph that his father, Jacob, is not entirely dead, or that there might be a possibility to reverse the condition, because after all, this sanatorium has a very interesting relationship to time. Time is somewhat funny in this sanatorium. Joseph, of course, has no idea what the hell he's talking about, but boy, he's about to learn as he then wanders around the labyrinthian halls of this sanatorium and basically travels throughout time. Um, he, He revisits his youth, he revisits his father's youth, and various periods of his life, and also things that probably never took place that are just pure fantasy, and and uh, things emerge from sort of the the dark recesses of his of his imagination. Um, yes, look, folks, this is a this is a Polish film from the seventies. It is. Uh, <laughs> A, we've been here before. We've been here before. <laughs> it's a surreal, nightmarish uh, jam about time, space, memory, history, nudity. <laughs> you know, it's it is all here. Uh, and in addition to that, um, this has to be uh, for me. I think one of the most. Uh, mind-blowing feats of production design you will perhaps ever see. Every frame of this movie is a work of fucking art. Uh, it is incredible the the detail in every strange crevice of this sanatorium. I mean, it is a feast for the senses. Uh, a, a very, very beautiful film, a very haunting film, a very dark film. I think also a very funny film, but also a very moving film in terms of what it's sort of trying to reflect upon in our relationship to family, to ourselves, to aging, to dying, and and more broadly, simply to to living. So. It's a whole ass life, but sort of jumbled up in a very interesting way, I think. And yes, I knew it was going to buck, but I also figured that once you both got your eyes on it, you wouldn't really care because (laughs) this movie rocks. Uh, Yeah, so that is the Hourglass Sanatorium from 1973. Yeah, I mean, there is certainly more than one ways to capture a life. And we we have that on display here. So Marsh, you had the the later film. Go ahead. What did what did you bring? 
Sure. Well, I want to, uh, you know, give you a, a look into my into my process here, please. Uh, you know, because of course th- there are a few films, right? I know we we joked like the Long Gray Line is a great uh, example. That of was going to be my throwback. Yeah. The whole, oh shit! Sorry. <laughs> That's fine. Uh, I you know I was really close to picking the Life and Death of Colonel Blimp, the Powell and Pressburger film, and I simply didn't because it's like long. Um, even though I kind of picked a longish film anyway. Uh, and then other than that, I was like also close to picking Walk Hard, the Dewey Cox story, because <laughs> uh, that goes from like you know when he's a kid to when he's old, and it's not a real person, even though it's a parody of a real person. See the kind of twisty shit you had me doing? Yeah, yeah. And so <laughs> ultimately, uh, you know, I came across a film that, you know, I've, I've known about uh, for a long time and never seen. And uh, I like the director. And I was like, all right, now's a, now's a great time to check out To Live from 1994, directed by Zhang Yimao. Uh, this is a historical epic drama, you know, kind of kind of thing that spans roughly 40 years in the life of a family and in particular uh, the sort of main couple uh, Fugue, played by, do you know how to say, is it Gay Yu or Je Yu? I don't know. Uh, doesn't doesn't matter. Uh, and <laughs> Jai Zen Played by Gong Lee. We know her. We know her. We love her. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they are a married couple at the center of this film that opens in China in the 1940s. Fu Gui is the son of a sort of maybe formerly wealthy uh, man. They're sort of like dwindling wealth in this like 1940s Chinese Civil War period. And Fuguay uh, has a crippling gambling addiction uh, that basically, uh, you know, uh, ruins him and his family's life. (laughs) Destroys their lives. (laughs) Destroys their lives. And this all happens, of course, like right when the Civil War is, is popping off. And so that really sets off, you know, this epic tale uh, of this couple and their children and their family through, you guessed it, China's greatest hits, the Great Leap Forward, the Cultural Revolution, and all the traumas, trials, tribulations, and triumphs in between this very hard life. Um, Obviously, this film was, you know, influenced by uh, Yimao's own life. He was a teenager during the Cultural Revolution. He spent 10 years on a farm and in a factory. Uh, His family were also uh, Kuomintang nationalists going way back. And so uh, he suffered lots of, uh, his family suffered lots of sort of prejudice throughout his life. And that sort of shaped how he saw the world uh, as, you know, their entire world was turned upside down by the communist revolution, of course. Um, this film is in, is interesting uh, for a couple reasons because at this point, Yimao had had a couple successes, including uh, Raise the Red Lantern, and he had become, along with some of his fifth-generation comrades, uh, sort of internationally respected auteurs whose films played at film festivals. And this film was not screened in China, but it was screened 
everywhere else around the world. And it played at the Cannes Film Festival, just like Andy's film. We got a Cannes double feature here tonight. Uh, and it was distributed by the Samuel Goldwyn Company, of all companies, the scrappy indie. Uh, you know, one minute they're bumbling uh, the release of To Sleep With Anger. The next minute they're out here releasing... Uh, a Zhangy Mao epic. Uh, weird times in the early 90s. And so uh, this film was, to a certain extent, a, a success internationally, but it was banned and uh, wasn't screened in China until it was available on home video. Um, yeah, we'll get into the specifics, but uh, this was my first time seeing it, and uh, I think it's a, it's a very beautiful film. And in so many ways, it's, yeah, kind of like the opposite of Andy's. It's a very kind of, like, objective, trying to be kind of, like, even-handed sort of look at this life, these lives. And Andy's film is, like, so subjective that it's, like, you don't even know what's real. And this, we know what's real. And it's very melodramatic and it's very emotional. Um, By comparison, it's a it's a very straight story. Yes, yeah, it's, so, it's so straight, you know? I was already preparing something like, uh, I feel like this film plays it a little too straight and maybe Andy's film plays it a little too weird, you know? They both are, like, <laughs> leaning in those directions. And I, and I loved them both. Um, so, yeah, anyway, uh, we'll get into it. That is To Live, uh, also known as Lifetimes in some English markets uh, from 1994. Thank you. Yeah, thank you both. I guess to begin, I was trying to think about how life is depicted in both of these films. And I was thinking about tropes, perhaps, that you see in films that cover a great deal of time, even if they aren't individually focusing on a single person. And I think that the two things about these films that you know, there's a lot of key differences, but I think the thing that was distinctly different and then I'll kind of unifies them in that sense is, is the way that the present is handled throughout. In To Live, it feels as if in every moment while we're in the present, we are kind of wrapped up in progress forward. Maybe progress is the wrong word, but we are, we're, we're forever linked to the future. These people, their lives, their present moment always feels as though it's being swept up by the march of history. They're forever moving forward and their, their fates are linked to their countries in certain respect. And in the Hourglass Sanatorium, the present is completely linked to the past. The past itself is what's defining every moment of their present, uh, or his, his present, right? He, he can't shake the past. And if we think about films that cover a great deal of time, and, and I think that to live very actively kind of deals with, uh, maybe it's a trope, but the idea of time healing all wounds, you know, like you just keep marching forward and, you know, some things do get smoothed out. Your tragedies become more palatable. In the Hourglass Sanatorium, when we're looking at this life, it doesn't feel as though time is healing these wounds, that these wounds are ever present uh, and define the life that we're living at that moment. So perhaps that's an entry point into looking at both of these and thinking about how a life is depicted, because that's, that's what was at the forefront of my mind, watching them in such close proximity. Well, I think that's like a, that's really perceptive, and I think it's what you sort of mentioned in that to live, their trajectory is bound up with the nation, right? So it's always like look forward, look forward, look forward to full communism. If we just get through these tough times, everything will be better. Don't 
think about the past because then we'll be canceled for being counter revolutionaries because <laughs> right. yeah. of the puppet show I used to do or whatever, you know? And so it's linked to the progress of the People's Republic of China. And in Hourglass Sanatorium, it's linked mostly to Judaism and Judaism in Poland before the war, right? Mm -hmm. And so like that, of course, gives it a completely different dimension in terms of what it's thinking about and what it's examining when it's examining this whole life. And yes, like time, what is time, you know? Like yeah. it all exists at once in Hourglass Sanatorium. And it really clicked for me the same way that you brought up, Ryan, watching it. I was like, Andy's a genie, he's a mad genius because this is a whole life just all on top of each other. And yeah. a whole life includes memories, dreams, fantasies, things that objectively didn't, aren't happening, but they are because they're happening <laughs> in front of the camera. Yeah, it's a life in time, fully experienced through time, not through space. I mean, obviously there's space here, but, you know, <laughs> uh, yeah, and, and what space is indeed, right? But... But the emphasis here more is on a, a guy sort of traveling through the experience of time and time in a relative manner, not in a linear manner. You know, yes, to live is is a, a great example of, yes, a, a sort of linear experience of of time. Uh, but but yeah, the hourglass sanitarium, it's 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 uh you know, it's something that I say to my students sometimes when we talk about it, you know, my, my sort of feelings about time and, and I will say to them, you know, one of the ways that I sort of look at, at time is, you know, everything has happened, is happening and will happen all at once. Right. Because if time is this just sort of like explosion the farther you zoom out from it, it's just this one instant where really the farther you get from it, the the more condensed on top of each other all these things really do become, you know? And then again, you know, without getting into a whole bunch of like, you know, physics mumbo jumbo, right? Like uh, it, it's, it is this sort of, for me, this sensation that, you know, when you bring into memory, when you bring into all these other aspects of our of our being, it's sort of like, you know, as you put it, Marsh, right? We're we're never we're never removed from all those things just simply because we're a few years older. Like they're as vivid and real and raw, even if they're not as perfect as we experience them the first time around, but they're there. They never go away. We're still grappling with it. I think another very important point in sort of comparing those two views of it is that To Live is a movie made in China, made in mainland China, and experiencing Chinese communism. And The Hourglass Sanitarium is a Polish film dealing with Soviet communism and a very different relationship to it and to ideas of progress that have sort of been, you know, foisted upon Poland time and time again, more often than not from without and not from within. So I think as we've discussed in the past, when we've looked at other Polish films, you do often, I think, see a, 
a concern with the the present and the past more than you do with the future because i think for a lot of polish filmmakers certainly ones that we've looked at it's like we don't have time to think about the future we've got to deal with the bullshit of the present which is more often than not that someone has come into poland and basically destroyed our history destroyed our legacy destroyed our past so for for i think you know a lot of polish filmmakers that past holding on to that past for dear life is so vital and so important because it has been more or less like outlawed by whoever now has has taken over and certainly the perspective of this film also dealing with Jewish identity, like Jewish, you know, Polish Jewish identity, you know, uh, because this is an adaptation. I should point that out to our listeners. I don't think I, any of us have mentioned that. It's Both an adaptation. Our adaptations. Okay, I didn't know that about To Live either. Uh, but yeah, the, in in the case of this one, it's an adaptation of a book by a Jewish writer uh, who I think died during World War II. He was shot by the Gestapo. Yeah, killed killed by the Gestapo during well, World War II. Um, and the director Wojciech Haas sort of brought in, uh, a lot of more contemporary experiences of the author that weren't in the original novel. So this is also a much more sort of, uh, uh, a very loose adaptation of the work that is from Wojciech Haas's subjectivity as much as it is a sort of like objective approach to to adapting this guy's novel. I so. mean, that would make, that's, that's interesting to know because that ties in with exactly, I think the way you're describing the Polish relationship to history in the film. Cause even when it started, I didn't read about it in advance. I had seen some photos of this film before and I had remembered you'd recommending it along with the Sargosa manuscript. I know you, I know you like those, oh, yeah. those films a lot. And when it started at first, I was, you know, I didn't know what I was necessarily getting into. And I thought, oh, is this a World War II film? Because we're on this this death train, right? And even right there, I, I don't know how much of that may have been in the book if the man was killed <laughs> during World War II. I don't know when he wrote the novel. But at the same time, it's these types of images are charged with that recent past and kind of experiencing things over and over again. I mean, there's there's something really interesting about Joseph meeting a child in the film and this child is showing him his like stamp collection or something like that. And, and he's treating him as if he's the same age as this boy, that he's an adult back in the past and everything's happening as if he were still a child, that he can't escape from this past. He can never actually commit himself to the future. He's stuck here in the past. And yeah, that's, I mean, that's obviously not the case in, in To Live. The, the, the idea of the past is something they don't even want to acknowledge at times. I mean, Fugui, when he's talking to his new son-in-law, who is, is of the Red Guard, you know, when he starts asking about what was going on in the 40s, he's like, oh, no, 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 no. We're not <laughs> yeah. bringing that up. I'm not eh, talking nothing. about, yeah, nothing. I was a little loose, you know, but like, God forbid the past gets brought up like that. That's too, too touchy. Yeah. That's, that's, that's interesting. Yeah. Because, uh, Fugui, when, when, uh, the revolution finally like, you know, breaks out and, and the communists win and he eventually makes his way home after being conscripted both, in both armies yeah, by, by the nationalists first. And then when they lose, uh, the, the, the communist forces, uh, when he finally 
gets back home, like he's desperate to sort of like wipe out all traces of his perhaps more bourgeois past. I mean, he, he throws himself like, you know, uh, uh, almost, you know, uh, dangerously as we will see, like into the, the, the sort of like new ideology of, of communist China. Like he wants, you know, the, it, 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 and obviously like the threat is real, you know, it isn't just that he's sort of like doing this for status more than anything. He's doing it to protect himself and to protect his family. But yeah, I mean, he is basically from that point on, uh, a new person. It's as if he, like everyone else in China, is 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 born in in that same year together. And and all who hold on to life prior to this are going to be steadily removed from from that new present, that new look towards the future. And it really sets in for him when the guy that swindled him out of his family's mansion in the 1940s, Long, uh, you know, after he comes home from the war, uh, Long is, you know, being tried publicly for like on capitalist charges and as a landlord and he gets executed in the public square off screen and he just pisses his pants and goes home and is like, the only reason that's not me is because, like, I was a shitty guy who gambled away all our <laughs> yeah. money. Like, it's just a complete accident <laughs> yeah. that I wasn't just publicly executed. And he is acutely aware of that for the rest of his life. He's the one in the family who's like, don't say anything politically incorrect, you know? Like, he's always on top of it of being like, to protect my family, we just got to, like, go along to get along, you know? And he just throws himself into that world as, like, I'm just a worker, you know? I just deliver the water. Right. I'm happy. <laughs> it's interesting because so many of the really important moments in To Live result with Fugui or some of the other characters constantly harping on if only I hadn't made this decision, if I had done this differently, if I hadn't recommended X, Y, Z happened, then this wouldn't have happened. Because they do, they just keep suffering these like unendurable tragedies. But it's always kind of going back towards, oh, I made this choice. Like that could so easily have been me if I didn't, you know, end up losing, you know, is this fate? Is it just a decision I made? And then so much of Hourglass Sanatorium is, what the hell even did I do? You know, like, what decisions did I make? What happened in my life? What was a dream? What was reality? You know, who, <laughs> what relationships yeah. are real? Like, <laughs> And, and I, I mean, it goes even, it goes even further in that because, you know, basically when he gets there, the doctor explains to him that, you know, because this sanatorium has a very unusual relationship to time, the doctor says, like, this opens up possibilities. This basically, you know, <laughs> allows us to, to perhaps reverse certain things, you know? And that's even what he says about his father's condition. You know, when he's like, so my dad's dead, right? And the doctor's like, <laughs> anywhere else, yeah. yeah Define dead. <laughs> right, yeah. Yeah. Any, anywhere else, he'd be dead. I think he specifically says, you know, from the perspective of your country, your father is dead. But here, there's a possibility we might be able to fix this, you know, but you're going to have to you're going to have to go. You're going to have to go into time now. And we do see like very quickly then him kind of 
I mean, it's weird to even say like the rules, but it's yeah. like, cause there really aren't rules, but you know, he goes into a, a, like a room in the sanatorium, like very quickly after that. And is just sort of like, I guess trying to make himself a cup of tea or something. He's like looking out a window and then he sees himself arriving yeah. at the sanatorium. So he's already quickly being like, Oh, okay. I get it. We're, we're, we're unstuck here. We're fully unstuck. Yeah. That's me. And as he enters the sanatorium, uh, he now enters it from a different entry point. Right. It's a little different. Yeah. Right. The, the, the path is already forking and he's now witnessing like, yes, these, these alternative routes that, that can lead him through his memories and his experiences and even the, the, the very present he thinks he's in. But, uh, yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's one in which you're absolutely right. You, you should question everything you see, you know, did, did it happen? Maybe. Did it happen to him? I mean, who knows? I think what also becomes really interesting are the questions of, you know, uh, you know, are, are we in his memories? Are we in his father's memories? I mean, he's sort of in both. Right. And then of course he also is just in 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 storyland at times are we in the doubles memories i mean i i'm glad you brought up the fact that he is doubled that we see him entering again because you know this may just not be clear i was curious if i did miss anything it do we ever he doesn't ever cross cross paths with his double again with himself (laughs) do we ever see the just in the mirror well no i mean he does near the ending like re-enter the room in which he sees his father's quote corpse for the first time but he's he pulls the sheet back and he's under the sheet right but then he's like gone and he's just like gets (laughs) up from the bed so i mean he kind of does he kind of does yeah but, I mean, he doesn't have, like, a conversation with himself. Right, right, of course, of course. Yeah, I was trying to remember if maybe there were images that floated past me that I didn't recognize where, you know, maybe he's in one space and then you see another one of him in the back. Or I was trying to think about how space works, but it's, you know, it's complicated. I mean, you gotta let, I mean, it's like, <laughs> yeah, you gotta this, let go of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> this, to me, is one of those films that has its own language, you know? Yeah. And, like... I felt so lost so much of the time in this movie and not in a bad way because of how it's shot and how it moves and Mm -hmm. how the spaces are designed. Like, I was never bored. I was just so lost. Yeah, you're supposed to be. Yeah, Yeah, and it really doesn't conform to, you know, movie expectations. It doesn't even conform to art house movie expectations. I know how to read an art house film. And I didn't know what to make of so much of this, which is also what gives it its excitement, you know, because you never know what's going on or what's going to happen. And those just like, I mean, at first too, the the vibe of the sanatorium, maybe we should describe a little more because it's got greenery, sort of like roots and trees and plants sort of like growing inside of it there's a lot of him crawling through like holes and under tables and like entering new universes yeah yeah. or spaces Mm -hmm. you know um molly said she thought i she was watching me play dark souls 
briefly. <laughs> it's Fair got enough. it's got kind of a dark fantasy feel to it in certain respects. Well, especially yeah, with like <laughs> when when he like crawls out of the hole and he's in like the public square of their like Galician town and all the old men are dressed up as like mythic bird creatures. <laughs> like that shit is crazy. Yeah. <laughs> Nadeszła cenna przesyłka. Czy może mi pan powiedzieć, gdzie obecnie znajduje się pański ojciec? Niestety, ja też go szukam. Pan pozwoli, że mu przedstawię. Honduras! I Nicaragua. Bliżej, bliżej. And so, like, it really stunned me at first, because it's almost like a black and white film in color at first, where everything's really subdued, you know? Almost like Le Cercle Rouge, Melville. Like, this film's in color, but we're going to make it look black and white. But then as the film goes on, there are all these interesting colors that are introduced. I mean, it's just a crazy-looking and blocked and staged film. So, yeah. Yeah, you know, the power of cinema rolled me along, but... You may have to explain a little of it to me if you well, can. Look, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've 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 seen this movie a couple times, and and I'll be honest with you, like, uh, I I I'm I'm just as lost as you are again. You know, yeah. this is a this is a movie that you know, and part of the reason why I got into uh, um, seeing, uh, the, the, the first film of his I saw was, uh, well, the only two films of Haas's that I've seen are Saragossa Manuscript and, and this one. Um, and part of the reason why I got into Saragossa Manuscript was, you know, in, in, in certain, like, you know, in my geeky grad school days, like in, in Delusian circles, like they, they're like, Haas, this is the guy, this is the guy. And, and this movie more so than Saragossa Manuscript, but, but Saragossa Manuscript is certainly also really appreciated. But I think part of the reason why, like, you know, a lot of like, quote, Delusian, like film, film critics, or I mean, can't even call them film critics, you know, just Delusian nut jobs, I guess, like they love this movie is because it's sort of the experience of, of so much of like the, like, I think what Deleuze like talks about, especially in like the time image, even though he doesn't talk about this movie in the time image at all. Um, and maybe he never saw this movie, but it's like, I mean, this is the shit he's talking about, you know, like sheets of the past, peaks of the present, like powers of the false, like all that shit is here. And, and I'll say like reading Deleuze, it's a kind of thing where you just hold on for dear life. And, and even if you maybe connect with one or two ideas, like, Hey, like, that's good. Like you, you, you did good kid, you know? And, and I think that's, that's what makes this movie for me, like so fun to, to revisit that it's, it's not a movie that you can kind of like see and quote, like get, it's a movie that you are truly meant to experience and engage with. And, and a film that I think encourages you to like surrender yourself to it entirely. And, and yeah, I mean, like, what is this film about? This film is about like a guy's, uh, a, a guy's life, but it's also about his death. Maybe. I mean, I think there's even a question like, is the guy even alive? You know, like was that train that he was on at the beginning? Well, like, right. There's the conductor throughout almost like ushering him through this journey but like who's that guy yeah yeah and again i've never read the book so i i don't know 
you know, uh, really anything about the source material other than the fact that this departs in many, many respects from it. So I think in that regard, it's sort of like, uh, you, you kind of have to leave, leave that aside. Like, look, maybe the book opens with him on like a very normal train that might be very weird, but this train that he's on, like, I mean, yes, like you said, it does invoke a certain, uh, aesthetic of like the 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 trains going to the death camps during the holocaust as he's walking through the train yeah there's there's people who are just sort of sitting there but there's also people who are like half naked sprawled on seats they look dead uh i mean this train is is not uh a normal train by any stretch of the imagination and there is a blind conductor as you've said sort of walking around who who also knows where everybody is and who he's talking to i mean he knows that he's talking to joseph and so there is this kind of supernatural element that i think uh is introduced from the beginning so again right like how are we to read this film? Uh, I think there's a lot of different ways that the film can be read. I think that that uh, you you know this 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 thing that you said earlier about subjectivity. It's like yes, this is a this is a film that 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 requires also the viewer's subjectivity as you as you engage with it, and and it encourages you to bring what you want into it you know it, it encourages you to also like unpack certain things uh for yourself as you're as you're sort of lost with yeah it, you know? talking about things that are that are unpacked in the film i think one of the subjective experiences i had and i was thinking about i don't know if this is based on the radical subjectivity of joseph or Wojciech haas but uh this film does certainly have a preoccupation with um opened bodices uh there are <laughs> even on the train all the horny memories he has just all the women in the film like it feels so every single woman in this film has like an open bodice that it's like not fully spilling out but often. that is like I, often yes often yes yeah, it yeah. reminded me of Fellini, the way like Fellini yeah. has his like recur you know sexual obsession with the sort yeah. of like big assed, uh, <laughs> you know, the prost Italian prostitute. Gelsimina, she's like always yes. named Gelsimina. Gelsimina, that's it. And so it was just to me, it was sort of like a version of that. Like obviously, there is that sort of like pivotal scene towards the beginning where you know he like he's in like in the whatever the city. There's like a set <laughs> that I was in my mind. I'm like, this is the city. You know, it's like the, the Warsaw Ghetto or whatever. Yeah. Even though know. it's described by his mother as the shop, right? <laughs> he goes down to the shop in the basement and yes, it's like a, a fucking city, you yeah. know? And they're like, uh, some guy just comes up to him and is sort of like, uh, you want to you want to go to the heavens, you know? And he climbs a ladder into this apartment where, uh, yeah, there's just like this sexy woman. I think she's supposed to be maybe their housekeeper from when he was a child. Maybe unclear, unclear to me yeah. exactly. But it's like that was the first moment where I'm like, oh, he's supposed to be like a child right now. But it's just like a 40 year old guy goofing off with this woman peering at her from behind like the blinds, hiding under the table, being 
just like acting like a child. Putting on funny with, hats, I think, in that yes, scene, maybe. And then he yeah. wears that hat for like an hour. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> by the way. The, the, the helmet. The helmet. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so that really like, I was like, okay, I, I, I kind of get this, you know, in terms of that. It's like folding these fixations and these mm-hmm. memories of him as a child. And I don't know if you read this too. I'm sure you have Andy. Like one thing that I read about it as an adaptation is that it's not even just an adaptation of one book. Mm-hmm. So there's these fantastical sort of like asides in this movie that have to do with Mexico and maybe Haiti and like Caribbean revolutions. And that's like, from what I understand, sort of like lifted by Haas from that author's other stories. So he's almost like adapting this universe Whoa. created by this author freely. And like rhizomatically just like inserting scenes from different books in this movie. Cause like, I like that, that stuff, yeah. I was trying to figure out like how that, that storybook world figured in. Cause it obviously has something to do with like the kids, right? Rudolph. Is that the, yeah. His, his Rudolph, <laughs> the little, the, the kid, he has a, so he, he stamp collection. Yeah. Harry Potter looking kid, you know, this yeah. Harry Potter ass kid. He's got a book that's, that's filled with stamps from all these other countries. And, and as you know, they're kind of going through them and talking about them. Uh, he then basically journeys to, uh, fantastical, you know, imagined, uh, uh, you know, locales all around the world. Yeah. I, I guess, you know, the way that I sort of look at this bo- uh, the movie um, is on a certain level, it's like as much as, again, this is really about this guy's life or his father's life. It's kind of about all lives. And then it becomes a, a, a sort of like broader journey through through like national identity, through religious identity, through imperial identity, colonial identities, sort of all these different shades of of identity. And and he becomes this kind of just sort of like this 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 wandering figure that is able to engage with so many different ideas like if if this movie has a fault its fault is that it has way too many ideas you know <laughs> yeah, no and, and and it's like again a thing for me that th- this is why again it's like you know th- th- bringing up the idea of the rhizome it's like there are so many uh shoots and and departures and avenues and hallways that you can sort of wander down and each one then is going to sort of introduce new concepts and new connections that that are 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 I think there for us again to to play with not necessarily for it to make a whole lot of uh logical sense but but it's more like again this 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 constant state of becoming where every time he he sort of like crawls under a bed and and opens up into a new space we are we are now lost in this space entirely and with these particular people and maybe we can make connections to what we previously saw but but you know don't try too hard you know take yeah. this moment and 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 this feeling and and these ideas like for for what they are 
in in this particular slice of time because yeah like when he goes in suddenly to like the the, the wax yeah, figure the museum, hall of villains yeah hall of <laughs> villains or whatever the hall of the afi villains <laughs> i mean like that's that's a point when i really have to say to people it's just like yeah i got no fucking idea man like but it rocks you know like yeah. it's great that's, and like yeah you can you can bend over backwards establishing connections and and it, it you know you ryan me and anybody else that's seen this movie can can come up with a, a very like you know thoughtful explanation and they can all be different and to each single one i would say like hell yeah like hell yeah sure. uh again i think that's the, the the joy of of if you want a movie like this because yeah. if you want a straight story you're gonna you're gonna bang your head against the fucking wall like it, for it two is hours. a it is a fun game to play i had a lot of fun going through the film and thinking from moment to moment and scene to scene you know what i might be looking at if i had to take a psychological approach what i might be looking at if i was just taking it from even if it was very literal minded right so it's like i'm okay i'm here with his mother and then i'm here with his childhood friend we go to that woman and i think like oh okay this is like an early sexual experience for him like we're trying to go deeper in the subconscious but then when we get to those sort of storybook moments of quote-unquote history with these revolutions and these soldiers, my first instinct actually was, I'm like, okay, so these are things he's read. These are things he's learned in life. And so I was thinking about a, a life experience trying to be encapsulated by throwing it all on top of each other. The things we learn would also then kind of meld with our memories and our dreams. There's a there's a moment in the film where, uh, as Marsh described, he he sort of enters this this town outside. You know, he, yeah, he crawls under a bed, and then suddenly he's outside, and there's all these people dressed up like birds, uh, and and there's also real birds. You know, I mean, it's like a it seems like a bird festival. Um, uh, he encounters his father. There. He's a real piece of work. His by the father, way. yeah, his father is is <laughs> is quite a character, and um, his father and him uh are talking about books and he's talking to his father about like books because he had sort of found this this what he calls an original text that he thinks is very important and he preserves it he thinks it's this is you know perhaps again in his mind maybe a key to unlocking a a deeper understanding or connection with his father or again perhaps like save his father drag his father out of you know the labyrinth that he's now lost in in this sanatorium as well and when he brings the book to his father you know and presenting it to him like with this you know great fanfare and and seriousness his father's just like that old thing fuck that book dude he's like book sucks Fargal! Fargal <laughs> and he's like books are myths yeah you know, and he, and he, but he says some really important things you know and he's saying he he specifically says to him like you know books can lead to or obsession with books can lead to blind literalism 
And we've got to avoid that. You know, you've got to let go of blind literalism. And that's really, I think, one of the most important lines in the entire film, because blind literalism will certainly like lead to your doom in, in trying to engage with this film. Yeah. But he then says something to your point, Ryan, where he says, you know, uh, uh, you know, we love books for a moment, you know, we cherish them for a moment and then they, they burn up like, like a Phoenix, you know, uh, rising into the air and, and, and coming down in nothing but ashes. And like, I think again, that's this idea that all this stuff that he's encountered, like at a certain point, it was very important to him or it, it might've contained some sort of idea, some sort of answer to making sense of existence. Mm. But what happens? Like we move on, we forget we encounter new books or new ideas that suddenly are everything to us. The meaning of life, right? Oh yeah, I've got it now. And his dad is basically telling him like, telling him like, just let go of that shit, you know, like enjoy something for what it is and move on. But no single text, no single book is going to, you know, provide you with like, the, the answer, right? Yeah, yeah mm -hmm. the, the the capital A answer. All I know is that he, like me and you, Andy, at a certain point, have become obsessed with you know the the follies of Mexican conquest, <laughs> and uh, I think that whole subplot was just cracking me up. Like all this stuff about Maximilian and like you know the French and like oh man, because you know I've read a lot about that mostly because of you like hipping me to like certain you know foreign legion history and stuff like that, and like reading Mexican history and that stuff was just cracking me up because I. That that was like when I felt closest to this guy. I was like, yeah, I read about that shit too. That shit's <laughs> fucking crazy. Yeah. And I I really did like the the sort of like wax museum sort of subplot because at one point, well, later he like liberates them, uh, which again, they're not dead and they're not wax, I guess, you know, that ultimate sort of change there but it has my favorite joke in the movie when the whole wax museum is like being explained by the proprietor and he's like and he's like oh there are all these historical figures who did bad things and they're like and then there's this guy this guy jerked off too much and i just fucking like <laughs> yeah. lost yeah. it <laughs> yeah yeah he's going from like you know like famous assassins and and like you know emperors and all this stuff and he's like yeah and this guy right here one of the most brilliant minds that ever lived but he had a crippling addiction to masturbation you know yeah and it's just the goofiest looking motherfucker you've ever seen yeah but again i i, I think that part of that part of those, the, the whole thing with that idea of like history and these figures in this wax museum, uh, you know, and them just sort of like being all these decaying, rotting, you know, like, uh, uh, walking corpses or whatever, again, speaks to this whole thing about, about books and time and, and change. And it's like, look at all these various points, these people were, you know, perhaps the, you know, felt like they were at the center of the world historical change, you know, hugely important figures. And now here they are in the, the, the dust quote, the, like the dustbin of history or whatever. Right. You know, they're just like, they don't mean shit anymore. And people have forgotten them. And, and we've gone 
so far beyond these moments that it's sort of like, yeah, like history, like, you know, trying to make sense again of also like, how, how did we get here, you know, through history? It's like, well, we're only looking at, at any point in time, what we've experienced and what we read about and what we've seen. And again, the whole point of this sanatorium is to sort of say like, yes, but what about all the, the other possible directions? And what about all that we've forgotten? What about all that hasn't been written? You know, there's a speech in the film. I can't even remember at this point who delivers it, but it reminds me of some conversations we've, we've had on the pod because some character is saying like, it is impossible to capture an event, right? And that yeah. comes up over and over again. It is impossible to capture an event because especially in the case of this movie, it's like, right, we have access to his mind, his father's mind, Wojciech Haas's mind, and we know what they know and only just partially that. And then, oh, what about everything they don't know, you know? And the film's like bringing that up, being like, again, Zoom out. You know nothing. I know nothing. Like, what is it? Again, back to, you know, classic Andy. What is an event? We could stay here all night. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, he, uh, another character asks, like, you know, like, what if we actually knew all landscapes, right? I mean, like, what, what if you did, what if you were able to see everything, you know? What if you did have, like, all this knowledge and, and you were able to sort of, like, suck it all up inside your brain, Okay, well then what? You know, yeah. so it's like this: like uh, you'd still just be a guy who loves to jerk off all the time, or whatever, right? You know, you just like, yeah, you'd be obsessed with like big titties or something. Yeah, you know? I mean, it kind of reminds me of this essay that we read in high school that they kind of had us read as a troll. It's a Nabokov essay about how reading. His take, his argument, it was kind of a joke, is that reading makes you dumber. That, And it's very similar to the speech that the father gives in the Hourglass Sanatorium, that if you, let's say you read something, you'll get stuck obeying an opinion or a perspective that's being presented for you instead of you internalizing it and reinterpreting it and making it your own, but instead we become reliant on on things we read. So it was just kind of like a crazy bozo Nabokov take in like, you know, whatever the 60s literary criticism. But it did make me think about that as it relates to the father giving that speech and then also that line, what if we knew a landscape, you know, or all the landscapes, what if we knew them all, then what? And what? It reminds me of one of my favorite shots in To Live, you know, talking about what characters know and what they don't know and how we experience life. Uh, after Fugui has been disgraced, uh, he turns to puppeteering. <laughs> Funny, too, same year that Hosha Shen released uh, The Puppet Master. This same film year? comes wow. out, which is also a, basically about a puppet master because after he, you know, gambles away his whole family's money, he, he forms a troupe. Uh, and we see him performing behind the screen, you know, him and his performers. And Yimu does this amazing thing to introduce us to, you know, his whole bubble bursting, which is... They're performing, and then a knife just comes right 
through the puppet screen back, you know, towards them. And it's the introduction of the Nationalist Army who are taking them prisoner. And now it's like he is swept up in the tide of history. He swept up in the Civil War. And no character mentioned there was a fucking Civil War going on, you know, for the first 40 minutes or 30 minutes of this movie. It had nothing to do with their lives. Nationalists, communists, like, we're just in our little town or our little city. I'm just going to the gambling hall. And then all of a sudden, that reality puncturing you know, his whole world, his whole life, and just upending it. It's crazy. Well, then talk about landscape, because the film just becomes so much larger then, too. And I was realizing the only other film of his I've seen is Hero, which I saw a ton <laughs> as a kid. I love <laughs> that movie. Um, yeah. good movie. Yeah, I remember getting it, like, on DVD for my birthday the same year, another buddy of mine got me a VHS of The Phantom Menace. And I was like, oh, this is a DVD. This is much cooler and this movie looks better. You know, five stars, it said on the box. But yeah, I, I was realizing he's a bit of a blind spot for me. But that was when when it opens up and we're on the battlefield and we have these, just <laughs> these giant landscapes and the sounds of hundreds of men stampeding as if they all sound like horses. Like the, the idea of hearing that in real life, I'm like, yes, this is this is that epic scale I remember from Yumao's cinema, from Hero, my Dude. only reference point, you know? When the <laughs> tilt up to the fucking PLA coming over the hill happens, that's like insane shot. Crazy. Um, crazy scope. And that's, yeah, I mean... You see that in his work, like this uh -huh. this epic scope for sure. And I I I, I would say too, like I, I can really see why I can fully understand why the the you know mainland authorities banned this film from from being shown in China uh, and and uh, you know another connection not only were they both at Cannes but they yes. were both banned I yeah. mean <laughs> the, we should say the Hourglass Sanatorium was certainly banned by the Polish authorities because they were like. We don't get this, but we assume it's somehow <laughs> bad. Been, this is esotericism. Pointing yeah. yeah, pointing the finger somehow at us. We can't be sure, you know. But but in, in, in this case, like I I can really like sort of understand it because you know look yes it's 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 obviously at times critical of certain moments in you know, China's, uh, uh, communist past, the, the, the tragedies that you mentioned the family go through as much as they are also about like a choice that somebody made, all those tragedies are also directly linked to like Chinese communist policies at the time, you know, oh, they lose their, their first child, during the great leap forward because, you know, everyone is being sort of like tasked with, you know, uh, working like these like smelting foundries, like around the clock to reach these quotas and, and everyone is fucking exhausted and can barely stand up. And, and there's just like a dumb accident where his, his friend, who's now a district chief, like, you know, is, is exhausted. He'll sleep at the wheel or something and like backs up into a fucking brick wall that crushes his son who shouldn't have been there in the first place, but right. they were there because, you know, 
he, they, that he's feeling the heat. He doesn't want to be perceived as like a bourgeois malinger. So he's, he feels he's got to work extra hard to, to wear the facade of being a good communist, you know? And so he sends his son who, who is like, you know, cannot stay awake. Anyway, like that's one tragedy, you know, his fucking daughter, Talk about false doctors. Yeah, talk about false doctors. <laughs> you know, his daughter dies in childbirth because during the, the Cultural Revolution, like, all the, you know, all the old doctors got basically, like, denounced and thrown in fucking re-education camps. And, and these, like, 12-year-old nurses are now running the hospital. And, yeah, the, their inexperience leads to the death of, the, of his daughter. But aside from those very obvious, you know... uh uh, uh, things. I also feel that just it's, it's entire vision of how people move through history is very, you know, uh, operates very contrary to like, certainly like the Chinese communist view, yeah. uh, because this is focusing on individuals. And as much as there is this like broad scale and there are these like big landscapes and like tons of people involved more often than not, that is just a backdrop to the subjective experience of, you know, uh, of, um, like the main, the main character I'm blanking on his name. Fugui, Fugui. Right. So like, even like when the PLA is like sweeping over the Hills, they're just this big mass, but our focus is really on him getting like, sort of like swallowed up by them and then him having to figure out how to survive once they have swept over him. You know, it's like, it's, it's focused on how these big things affected these individuals and the fact that yes, more often than not, it led to some sort of loss. Uh, you know, yes, you can, you can fully understand why the Chinese would probably say, you know, is this a total like negative view of, of Chinese history? No, but it's certainly like lingering on its effects on, on the individual. Yeah. Which is very, yeah. Yeah. yeah there's some, it, it often uses like irony or cynicism to couch some of that stuff because there's also like, it's sort of like, yeah, a lot of scenes play with this like double meaning, right? And he he upsets expectations too because you know later Feng Feng Shui, the daughter who's uh, deaf a deaf mute after she had this illness, she's like paired up with this uh, this red guard that has a bum leg and like in this old fashioned way they're like, well they both have defects so like they should get married or whatever, and it's like. In the Cultural Revolution section, which is, of course, the most, like, fraught section of the film, and it's like, the expectations are completely upset when this guy, it's like, he's the head of the Red Guard at the factory. He's just so nice. He's just so chill and so yeah. nice and, like... <laughs> the perfect Chinese citizen unironically, you know? So the film, the film does have those elements where he's going to great pains to be like, yes, I'm kind of pointing the finger like, yes, but like, it's just a, it's just a grand tragedy. And there were good people. There were, you know, bad policies, whatever. Like he's definitely not going like full, yeah, uh, full throated. Oh, yeah. No, he yeah. could he could have gone way harder. I mean, I was really surprised that I, I was expecting uh, thirty minutes of famine 
You know, I mean, it felt like they were really setting it up where they're 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 melting all of their iron down. You know, I'm like, well, what happens when none of them have any agricultural tools left? What what happens? And then like, yeah, we don't see that. It we we move from like just about the precipice because I almost thought. You know, I was. Well, they're not farmers, so thankfully. No, yeah, <laughs> thankfully, yes, but but I was when they were when they were building up towards the sun's death, and they have one of the the things that you know in the build up to it, the mother gives him like twenty dumplings. He's like, oh, he's so sleepy, he's so hungry. Like, give give him a bunch of dumplings. And I I leaned to Molly and I said, like, ah, see, we're gonna we're gonna enter into the famine. They're gonna wish they had those dumplings in in a couple years. Um, but no, it ends up being something much more poetic and beautiful. Where then at the grave site, you know, they have the spoiled dumplings, and she bakes him some new ones so that he can like go on to you know into the afterlife with with a full belly. Um, but yeah, that, I was thinking about that. That it is a film that is still surprisingly aggressive in many respects, but at the same time, kind of has this even-handed look at it when it's dealing with history and certain things that are kind of like hidden. I mean, I suppose at the time too, the early '90s, if I'm remembering correctly, I think the scale of the famine wasn't as common knowledge. I mean, outside of the fact that probably knew a lot of people that went through it and died, but still like mm-hmm. the scale wasn't as well <clears throat> understood even within China. And I think too, it, it's, it, he saved on a certain level, perhaps again, in, in maybe the eyes of the, the, the authorities in China with also approaching a lot of this history with a, a very like dry sense of humor mm-hmm. that, that, it isn't mean spirited, but but sort of like everyone is a target, you know. It, it's it's kind of like the the perfect satire in that sense, where it's like, well, everybody gets everybody gets a, a, a you know a skewering when they deserve one, you know. Yeah. Good communists, bad communists, capitalists, like it's like humans, right? There's good ones and bad ones and we find them everywhere. There are people in positions of authority who are really good at their jobs and, and good communists. You know, one of my favorite dudes was just the, the, like the, the cadre of their like neighborhood who is like, again, you know, in a very obvious and, and less, thoughtful and and certainly you would argue like western view of these things well naturally the cadre as soon as he shows up it's like bad news right any guy that gets any kind of authority in a society like this has to be corrupt and evil and this guy is again just like the 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 best communist you've ever met you know (laughs) a true believer but like a guy that treats everybody respectfully and fairly and and is does his job with like a smile on his face and like a genuine smile on his face you know and like you know it, it isn't it isn't it isn't necessarily that that he's saying like well you know communism is bad he's saying that like hey sometimes you go left and maybe you should have gone right. And, and Hey, you know, it's a more utilitarian approach to critiquing, you know, Chinese history. One that is sort of, again, I think at times like very, very humorous and, and, and humor in the way that Chinese audiences would probably like really appreciate and really find even more to laugh about than, than we do because they, as you said, you know, it's like, it might not be part of the official history, but it's certainly part of the 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 lived history for for anyone who's who's grown up in in mainland China. You know, like there's one of my favorite moments where I was like cracking up is 
you know, when they're at uh, one of the um, the sort of canteens that get set up in the town, uh, you know, there's there's this little conflict going on Sauce between bomb. yeah between his son and and some other kids in the neighborhood who kind of bullies or whatever. And there's this amazing scene where after this this sort of like fight between his son and and these bullies, we see his son at the canteen and he's going to get his bowl of food and he's filling it up. And uh, dude, that scene made me so hungry because oh, it just, it's like <laughs> so good. Yeah, the, the, the noodle dish that, the, that he got looked great and he's putting all the stuff I love on it. He's loading it up with chili oil. He's got the sauces and it's just this big bowl, you know? And it's like a long scene of this kid like setting up his bowl of food and i'm like man this is going to be so delicious and then he just you know methodically goes over to where this kid is sitting this bully and he drags a chair and he gets it up and then suddenly i realize what he's doing and he dumps the bowl on the kid's head which of course upsets the kid's parents and leads to this whole thing and the the, the parent of the kid who just got the noodles dumped on him, like, stands up and he's like, this is an outrage. This is sabotage of the communal kitchen. You know, like, that's, that's yeah. it. And, and even, like, the cook is like, come on, man, his kid's being kids. And he's like, no, this is sabotage. Yeah, this is counter-revolutionary. Yeah, yeah, you know, like, I got to imagine that, I mean, I laugh, but I got to imagine that, like, Chinese audiences would have probably sure. been, like, cracking up in that moment, you know, because the joke is that it's like, yeah, like there is such a thing as sabotage, but this ain't it, dude. Like, chill. This is just kids being fucking kids. But that's the kind of wackiness that 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 existed in this society at that time. Yeah, you know? I mean, I just read the that Russian novel Life and Fate, and there's a scene where they're essentially grilling a dude. I mean, you know, casually at home. It's not like the police or anything, but you know, his. His circle of friends, they're like, well, your son, uh, he was like drawing with crayons on a portrait of Stalin. Uh, like, what's that about? And his kid's like four, yeah. <laughs> you know, but like that, that, that amount of threat. I mean, it's funny. Some of the links too. I was saying off air, I just watched the Borzegi film the mortal storm and i was like just thinking about you know cult of personalities and i'm like you know what that one was missing like boy that was missing a mao themed wedding yes or a, a hitler themed well, wedding because we get a mao themed <laughs> wedding in, in to live you know you think you think that nazi youth that they they love that adolf like my god look at how much the red guard loves mao like to have a whole wedding themed entirely around mao at every step of the way the best jokes in the movie is the production design you know like their little shack 
being donned with like the evolving uh, Mao stuff is so funny because it starts and she has like when he comes home or, or early on there like there's one picture of him and then by the time you get to like the 70s it's like Mao is all over their walls you know they're playing ball obviously uh and and it just keeps ac- accumulating like over time and it's just it's like a funny joke you yeah. know in that sense even the reveal that the their new son-in-law is a decent dude oh i love oh, is like yes. a joke <laughs> Someone's destroying your house. Yeah, they're ripping the shingles (laughs) off of your roof like they've come with ladders and all the tough men, the red guards are at your place and they're freaking out and you think, you know, they're like at the shop buying some some linens or something. They're like, oh no, like what did we what do we have on the wall? Like what kind of reactionary stuff do we have? Like we're getting a grilling. And no, they were just repairing the roof, painting some portraits, making the place look nice. Yeah, just sprucing it up a little bit. But I love that that was like a joke. You know, you think like, oh, yeah, this guy's going to be a big bully. The Red Guards are coming. They're they're ripping your house apart. Yeah, I think it's a it's a real testament to both of these films. And and what I would say to anyone that that hasn't seen them that is is curious about seeing them is like, you know, these are both like funny movies, you know, and they're dealing with like serious ideas and serious subject matter. But the way they dance across all of that stuff, the real like humanity found in these films is is in the sense of humor of both the yeah. filmmakers. I mean, even when we were sort of like talking about the movies, I said to Marsh, I'm just like, I know like if you read a description of the Hourglass Sanitarium, it, it sounds heavy. And certainly people like mention the Holocaust stuff, which like, to be honest, is like, it's very read between the lines in terms of the Holocaust. Like there isn't a, a lot of like smacked in your face. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. this is a movie about, you know, the Holocaust. Like there's yes, there's there's allusions to it and there's ideas, but but really I, I said like I consider this movie a a, a, a very dark comedy. It's kind of like a body comedy a lot yeah. of the time. Yeah, and I, I think the connection to like Fellini is like perfect, you know. It's 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 approach to 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 like dreams and and dream logic and and all these kinds of things. It's 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 of course like it's nuts and 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 you should laugh at at what happens and what's going on. There's lots of comedy, certainly lots of comedy with with busty women and things like that, but it's just a very funny script and there's a lot of lines that that I I really appreciate. I mean like we were talking about the history stuff, you know, and like again, you you find yourself in these situations where you're kind of asking yourself like, "Well, what is all this like what is all this about? Like, what's going on here? You know? And like more often than not, a lot of these scenes will have like Joseph, like more or less, like sum up what we should take from it. It's like when he's with all these, these people, these, these fallen monarchs, these assassins, these, these bad dudes of history or whatever, like he leaves. And, and when he's sort of trying to talk to a character about where he was, uh, he says, uh, um, he says, well, I got involved in the domestic affairs of monarchs. I think we're in trouble, you know, like that's his way of summing up history, right? It's like, yeah, well, I hung out with all these guys and like, yeah, we're fucked. <laughs> like this is, this is history. This is the world. And again, like le- much later in the film, you know, when he's gone through all of this stuff and, and I should say when we've gone through all of this stuff, when we are, are sitting there going like, I'm lost, what the fuck happened? 
Uh, he's got this great line where like he meets up again with his dad and, and he says something along the lines of like, you know, we brought him here because of an ad and I think we were deceived, you know, like <laughs> yeah. it was basically the like, sanatorium. Yeah. This is, this is like, this is shady advertising. This was not what they said was going to go on here. Like, yeah. This is bullshit. I mean, exactly. Right. How else can you sum up this whole experience other than by being deceived by an advertisement? Like, yeah. It reminds me of a bit of humor that, uh, you know, was all too relevant in to live, which is in the great, leap forward section and they're like melting down all their bicycles and you know mr new the cadre is like thanks to all of your hard work like we we have made three cannonballs yeah we will be taking taiwan any minute we will be taking (laughs) taiwan like so soon i promise you thanks to your hard work we have two extra bullets and three extra cannonballs we will take taiwan and i'm just like oh here we are you know like yeah yeah it's and it's kind of like a running gag because yes. i feel like it comes up at multiple times that like they're just like and on to taiwan you know yeah. And everyone's like, yeah let's go the other like really darkly funny thing that i liked in to live where during the very tragic sequence when the student nurses don't know how to take care of Feng Xia when she's giving birth and she's bleeding uncontrollably. And they bring in a doctor who they think, you know, then, oh, great, like we brought this doctor who was deemed a reactionary. We snuck him in here so he can take care of our daughter. But when they saw that the doctor was rather malnourished and hadn't had much to eat, uh, our guy, Fu Gui, get, gets him some buns and tells him to take his time and eat them. And He's very hungry. He eats them much too fast. He ODs on buns. He ODs on buns. And then as a way to try and make him, you know, to help settle his stomach, they give him a lot of hot water. And then it's later when they're even thinking about, like, again, talking about unendurable tragedies, losing both of your children, being swept up in history in this way. It's later when he's thinking like, man, you know, if only I hadn't gave all those buns to the doctor, our daughter might be here. And they're sitting there at the graveside of the daughter but it's specifically when he's like you know because they say when you eat a bun and you drink some water it turns it into seven buns and i he ate seven buns yeah, that's so 49 it's really, buns that's 49 <laughs> buns <laughs> just a little folk wisdom there yeah. folk math, you know like and on top of that we then learn also that the the doctor did live and and that to this day we'll never eat another bun that's <laughs> like, right you know. the cosmic irony of the rice being more expensive you know he has to live with that yeah yeah there's a lot of goofy stuff i mean like there are yeah these grace notes and these moments of lightness throughout the heaviness that i think really shows off i mean for both directors it shows off their skill and dexterity at navigating these tones Mm -hmm. for sure yeah, it's just, it's overall, I was really impressed by how focused it is. And I think it's interesting what you were saying, Andy, about the idea of China being frustrated, like the Chinese government seeing this as a very individual story. There's so much of it that feels like a very small world. Like there's all these coincidences of paths crossing again. I mean, just the fact that his son is killed by his former buddy that he was like in the war with. You know. I read that that's a bit of, uh, you know, that's like screenwriter stuff because the novel, it does not have that coincidence. Uh, 
And then they're like, wow, it's a movie. So like everything's going to sort of tie together. Yeah, like, of what course. When the guy walks up, it's his friend. Yeah, yeah. right. Exactly. <laughs> right. Which like, I get it. Books and movies are different. You know, you want the movie to have that sort of emotional yeah. punch. And it does with Chun yeah. Chang, the yeah, driver. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I like the plant and payoff with him where when he does when they're at the funeral for the son and he's tries to give them money and he says, what can I give you? Is there anything I can give you? They just keep saying like, you owe us a life. You know, you stole a life from us. And it's later in the film when he's a, very close to committing suicide because his wife was either killed by the state or actually committed suicide. And he's wandering off. There's the payoff. They say, you owe us a life. They say to a man way off in the distance, like at the horizon, like you owe us a life. Treasure! Like, you you can't do this to yourself. And I, yeah, screenwriting, but uh, it totally worked for me. I was, like, very moved by that that moment in the film. Gong Lee's really great, but I feel like she, she didn't satisfy, and this movie didn't satisfy something that you wanted, Ryan, of, like, characters aging. And I think with... Fugui, like he ages a good amount and they give him, you know, he may yeah. make him a little scraggly, but like there is no aging Gong Li. She looks amazing. It's, it's impossible. Yeah. And so you're like, how many years have passed? Because she still looks 27, you yeah. know? And that's like one of the funny things I was also just laughing at being like, in Miami Vice, she doesn't look like she's aged, you right. know? So, like, <laughs> what are we expecting here, yeah. you know? Yeah, when she's, like, sick in bed at the end, yeah. being taken care of by the grandchildren, <laughs> I'm like, oh, she looks great. Yeah, I'm like, she's going to be in six more Zhang Yimao films, like, in the right. 90s. <laughs> like, she's fine, you know? <laughs> They did do, because I know that was like a part of what spurred the topic for you. And I know we've talked about this in the past, like, you know, like funny old man makeup yeah. that actors will sometimes wear. And like, I said that to Marsh when we were going into this topic. I was like, I know what he wants and and I, I can't find the right movie to give him the old man <laughs> makeup. But, but I would say that there is a, there is a funny moment in... Uh, uh, the hourglass sanatorium where when he's like hanging out in one of these, you know, slices of time and, and encounters his dad, the idea is supposed to be that his dad is much younger. And I don't know if you clocked it, but there is one scene where like his dad is an old ass man and he's got like long white hair and a white goatee. I mean, he's an old man, but when he goes into this section, I think it's when they're talking about books, they just took like a, a tiny little like black haired toupee and just like slapped it on top yeah. of his dad's head to be like yeah he's younger now right like yeah. in your memory he was younger but it's like th they're not even like hiding the fact that right. like i mean his white hair is sticking out the bottom of it you know so i mean there was that i would say yes so. of course of course no we have we yeah we we went the you know lives take very different directions. And sometimes, you know, we find ourselves thinking we're soldiering forward, but we go out in a roundabout way. Uh, and that's certainly what happens with Hourglass. But it is a life. I, I it's, a, it's a buck that honors the topic, I well, think. Well, and again, I think it, like... It, 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 to me, like it's a film that like really does perfectly invoke the idea of reflecting upon a life. Because, yeah. you know, it, it's, it's a film in which you can try to remember it and recall it and you're going to get details jumbled up, mixed up, 
wrong. You're going to forget feel it very important while things. I was watching. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> in the same way that, you know, when you look back on your life, it's like every time you will recall, try to recall an event in your life, odds are you're going to recall it like slightly differently. Yeah. You, you, again, this, this impossibility of ever capturing an event, you, you can't. The minute you do or try to like, uh, something has gone horribly wrong, you know, like it's, it's not real. You know, the best things that we can recall are usually like works of fiction that, that endure the test of time. You know, we can remember, uh, uh, you know, James Bond in, in Goldfinger precisely, right? Probably better than we can remember our first grade fucking teacher, right? Sure. Couldn't tell you. <laughs> I remember her name, but I remember Goldfinger better. I bet you do. <laughs> yep. Well, sort of. Uh, I already spoiled your throwback, Ryan. So yeah. do you want to tell? You want to talk about the long gray line? Yeah. I mean, honestly, we. You know, one of the reasons I picked this topic was because I thought, oh, great, it'll give me an excuse like within the week to rewatch The Long Gray Line because I love it so much. I've only seen it the one time uh, with you, I think. Didn't we watch yeah, it together? Yeah, I believe so. And uh, have you seen that film, Andy? Mm, no, I actually don't think I've ever seen it. Yeah, it's like kind of a deep cut. Do you remember who the actor is, Marsh? The lead nope. guy? Nope. Yeah, but it's like 50 years in the life of oh, uh, yeah, an army was, man. Yeah. yeah. At West Point. At West Point, yeah. At West Point, it's yeah. It's Tyrone Power. Tyrone Power. And yeah, I think it's I think it's 50 years or so. It covers yeah, a Yeah, because it's like 1898 through World War II. Yeah. Like, he like rolls up to West Point at like the turn of the century, basically. That's right. Yeah, and it's Cinemascope, uh, maybe Ford's first Cinemascope. Uh, don't quote me on that. Anyways, it's just so good. It's like, you know, you got the greatest filmmaker of all time uh, trying to capture a whole life, and it's just stunning. Um, and that guy, he goes through it all. Um, but I mean, my recollections of it are quite vague, but I do remember, I feel as though it's just, it's the kind of film that makes you look back on life and it makes you think of it uh, in a much richer way because of, yeah. of how much is captured. He goes from like being a dishwasher to an NCO to an athletics instructor. And so it's like also like Ford comedy shit where he's like the swim coach for all these army guys. Yeah. And just, yeah, also like the in that Fordian way of like longing to be a soldier but not being able to. That's the story of this guy's life. It's a story of a guy who served the military in a non-combat capacity for 50 years and like what that. That's real service. I mean, yeah. in, a, in a way, yeah. He's like the the grandfather to all these guys who keep getting sent off, you know? And uh, it really is, yeah. It's, yeah. It's not to steal your thunder. But no, no, no. You remember it better than movie, I. I just remember know? the impression it left on me, and I'm excited to maybe with even in the next week watch it again because I really yeah. love it, and it's been a long time. Uh, yeah. But, yeah, that was the that was the only one I remembered. Um, coming in, I don't even have an alternate. I had a feeling it would be a hard one. Um, so, but Certainly I'm not the way you <laughs> presented it to us. You, you said eh, there's probably plenty of these. Yeah. I, well, I hoped there were. I mean, <laughs> yeah, bicentennial man. Yeah, like bicentennial man. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. No, no. The thank you both very much. AI, um, two thousand years. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> um, no, it, it really scratched the itch. It, it was a, a very wild ride. Uh, through life um but 
we'll take you on a ride next, Marsh. So what what topic do you have? Yes. Uh, well, this topic comes from Marsh's mailbag. You've got mail. Ah. Woo! Got a message here in Marsh's mailbag from Gus. It says... I really enjoy your podcast and would like to hear you discuss a subject that's interested me for some time. Directors as actors. Occasionally, someone best known as a filmmaker will act in someone else's movie. Round Midnight, The American Friend, The Other Side of the Wind, etc. I would love to hear you guys do an episode about this phenomenon. So that is... The topic, directors as actors, so people primarily known Mm -hmm. for their directing, giving it a whirl on the silver screen. Yeah, taking themselves out for a spin. Yes. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, indeed. So interpret that as you see fit, and as always, you can follow us on Twitter, you can... Listen to us on SoundCloud, Apple, Spotify, etc. And you can send your emails and topic suggestions and comments and questions to Marsh's Mailbag at gauntletmoviepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone. Czuję się tu tak samotny. Chociaż nie można się uskarżać w mojej sytuacji. Przeszedłem już gorsze do tu. Wyznam ci nowinę. A się nie śmieję, Józefie. Wynająłem tu lokal na sklep. No, nie wyobraźcie znowu jakiś... Wspaniałości, skądże znowu. U nas w mieście pewnie wstydziłbym się takiego straganu, ale tutaj byśmy tyle musieli popuścić naszych pretensji. Nieprawda, Józefie? Tak, tak jakoś się żyje. Pewnie przekręciłem sprężynę. Widzę, że śpiący Józefie. No to prześpij się jeszcze. Nie masz pojęcia, jak trudno było o kredyt. Z jakim niedowierzaniem odnoszą się tu do starych kupców. Do kupców z poważną przeszłością. Józefie, pamiętasz lokaloptyka na rynku? Otóż zaraz obok. Jest nasz sklep. Nie no, szyldu jeszcze nie ma, ale i tak trafisz. Ojciec wychodzi bez palta? Nie znalazłem go w kufrze. Zapomniano mi je zapakować. Niech ojciec weźmie moje palto. Nie, nie, nie.